The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Naked Pomegranate Tory Edition. It's Wednesday, January 9th, 2019. On today's show, the favorite is a sweet, juicy bit of 18th century pulp. It tells the story of two rivals for the favor of Queen Anne. And then Roma is the latest movie from the director Alfonso Cuaron. He of so many remarkable films. I cannot wait to talk to Dana about um, both this movie and her wonderful review. Finally, it's that time of year again when we discuss Slate discussing movies in their movie club package, uh, which raises the question of the state of Hollywood, the film industry, and our collective souls. Uh, joining me today is, I promise to master the job title before you master the job. So Too late. I, I know you're not You've there got yet. time. <laughs> <laughs> you are the deputy managing editor of the Los uh-huh. Angeles Times in charge of arts and cu- culture. That is correct. <laughs> Dana Stevens is the film critic of Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. Um, and I should pop in here uh, as we do our introductions to apologize for my sound, which is going to be a little weird and telephonic today. Um, we're getting my recording situation out in L.A., sorted and it's taking a minute which is entirely on me but uh anyhow i won't sound great today but i will in the near future thank you for your patience all right why don't we why don't we dive right in it's a tall glass of tall glass of juice we have here the favorite takes place in the court of queen anne and here is played by the british actress olivia coleman familiar to our listeners probably from broad church anyway as queen anne she is gout addled moody possibly weak-willed i would say even by contemporary standards, maybe bipolar. But she's also the queen, and so to ballast herself publicly to love her forbiddenly, she has taken the Duchess of Marlborough as her right-hand lady. Uh, She's played by Rachel Weisz. Into the court comes the Duchess's cousin, a fallen aristocrat, who must now, through guile, work her way up from scullery back to lady status. She is played by Emma Stone. A very juicy rivalry ensues. Clearly, I perceived this movie as juicy. All right, let's listen to a clip, but before we do, just to set it up a little bit, there are a bunch of scenes with them shooting pigeons and talking rivalrously and snarkily to one another, and this is one of them. I am a person of honor, even if my station is not. Even if I were the last one left in this wretched place, I would remain a lady. (laughs) You're pretty when outraged. So my secrets are safe with you? All of them. Good. Even your biggest secret. Abigail. (gasps) If you forget to load the pellet, the gun fires, makes a sound, but releases no shot. It is a great jape, do you agree? Yes. Maybe we will think of a use for it one day. Sometimes it is hard to remember whether you have loaded the pellet or not. I do fear confusion and accidents. I'm sure people will be careful. 
Dana, let me start with you. The favorite uh, was seemed to be totally beloved by critics, um, an Oscar contender straight out of the gate. What do you think of it? Uh, you know, I've come around on the favorite. My review of it was not altogether positive. I'm not one of those critics who swooned for it. It wasn't on my top 10 list. I don't I'm not exactly rooting for it in any category, although it accomplishes enough things that I believe it should be recognized for some of those things. Um, the favorite is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, this Greek director who occupies this very specific niche. It's almost like he's carved out for himself. I am the guy who makes movies about little insular worlds with their own rules. And I, you know, I sort of artificially create this hothouse environment, show it to you for the first third of the movie and then watch it kind of falling apart by its own logic for the last part of the movie. And uh, movies I'm thinking of are Dogtooth, which was his breakthrough movie. I'm not sure if it was his very first, but certainly his breakthrough movie internationally, which imagines this this strange dysfunctional family that lives according to its own rules and doesn't the parents don't allow their grown children out of the, the house, the compound they live in, basically. He also made, I think you talked about it on this show, although I wasn't here, The Lobster with Colin Farrell, which also imagines a strange world, a kind of magical realist world where if you don't pair up by a certain age, you are t- forcibly turned into an animal by the state. So you see the kind of thing that he's interested in and you can see why he would take on an 18th century court that also functions by these strange artificial rules. Um, It is, as you say, a very delectable, fun to watch movie. And I guess I just don't think it goes that much further than that and don't really see the argument for it being a great masterpiece. You described it as sweet and juicy in your introduction, Steve, and I would go with only half of that. This movie is juicy, but it is not at all sweet. It is actually sour. I mean, tart to an extreme degree and uh, and really almost misanthropic. I mean, I sort of want to talk to you guys about that in a way. What is the ideal state for this movie, both in the political sense and, you know, uh, the ideal state of being? I mean, it's a movie about a love triangle in which there doesn't seem to really be any lasting relationship that one can trust. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty dark vision of political power. Yeah. It has three astoundingly great performances in it and lots of fun scenes like that pigeon shooting sort of diva, diva bitchy dialogue abounds in this movie. And so, yeah, I think people will thoroughly enjoy it if they see it. If you want to hear the stuff I didn't like about it, well, hmm, I think this movie is a little in love with itself. It in some ways reminds me of Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria from earlier this year in that it's divided into chapters and the chapters have printed intertitles that appear on the screen that kind of preview a line of dialogue from the scene to come. And so that adds to the artificiality. The direction is extremely artificial and I would say show-off-y. There's constant use of fisheye lenses and whip pans and the camera's always doing something dramatic and there's always blasts of Baroque music coming on the soundtrack. It sort of buffets you around um, from scene to scene. And I guess some people enjoy that experience. I found the direction manipulative. And it's sort of rare to see a movie where the most annoying thing about it is the direction, right? Like if you could peel that away somehow, I think there would be a better movie beneath with the script and the performances. So Mm. that's a long, complex answer. I don't know if I would send people to see this or not. Essentially, if you want to hear people doing things like we heard in that clip. If you want to hear, you know, beautiful women wearing 18th century garments shoot pigeons and splatter each other with pigeon blood while threatening to kill each other obscurely, then this is the movie for you. What's not sweet about that? Okay, I stand corrected. Tart tart and uh, juicy. What did you make of this uh, tall glass of... of, uh... Pigeon blood? Yes. Thank you. Um, I loved watching this movie. I, I loved watching it. I didn't mind its whip pans and its Baroque blast. The description you gave of Lanthimos's direction 
lifestyle, Dana, just called to mind just as you were speaking, uh, Sofia Coppola. He's like a male Sofia Coppola. He's making like weird ass little hothouses and then luxuriating in them. And then there's, it's obviously different, but there's, there's, there's something of that in this, I think maybe. Um, maybe that gets it. I'm not crazy about Sofia Coppola either, but I think there is, you're right, there's something in common. She's more dreamy and drifty and he's a little bit more into sadistically manipulating the audience, but it's a, there's a pleasure in being sadistically manipulated. I'm not going to lie. Well, and it's all very careful and beautiful and mannered. I mean, this actually reminds me of, what was the name of Sofia Coppola's movie in the South with the mushrooms? The Beguiled. The Beguiled. Yeah, there's a bit of that to it. I mean, yes, it's less, less dreamlike. I just could not resist watching these three women in their incredible Sandy Powell costumes getting to do all of the delicious things they get to do in this movie. Olivia Coleman's performance is amazing. Rachel Weisz is, like, steely and competent and wears an insane, like, leather riding outfit that I just want to wear every day for the rest of my life. Uh, and then turns out to have a heart of gold, and Emma Stone is a straight-up bitch. And I, I, yeah, I, it's sweet is the wrong word. I'm team Dana on that, but it was delectable, I would say. Um, or maybe it's a bit of a poison apple. Uh, I think the end is pretty dark and misanthropic, although I would argue that there's actually like a line of poignant humanity in what befalls Rachel Weisz. His love for the queen, I think, turns out to be purer than it seems like it might be at first. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, Dana, just those, whatever those outfits are where they're wearing kind of, they have like the nun wings on their hips. They have these like flying buttresses on their bustle. Like, I, I, I just, I just bathe my eyes in those costumes forever. It's so fun. Mm. Yeah, the costume, just one word on the costumes, which really are remarkable. It's not just that they're period appropriate. In fact, as a non-fashion historian, I can't say how period appropriate they are, but I'm sure tons of research went into them. But the point is not sort of Merchant Ivory style to make a beautiful scene where everybody has period appropriate clothes. There's a real designiness to the to the entire look of the court. So it's almost in a black and white palette. Did you notice it's almost all either black and white or navy and white? And so everybody looks like a domino or a chess piece being moved around, you know, and some of those big right. scenes of all the courtiers gathered together just have this really great use of just a couple a couple of colors to um to to create that sense that you're on a game board. Mm. Um so I got come in right about in between the two of you. Um it's uh, sumptuous to look at. It's uh, very tart. I don't know if I mentioned its tartness. Um, <laughs> it um it takes place in the great a- age of cleavage. You know, it's bosomy and, and you know, it's I, I, something that I don't especially like, which is the way the, you know, contemporary cinema imagines the great British past always seems just like a, I'm watching a school play with kind of put on accents. Not that Emma Stone isn't wonderful and not that her accent isn't totally believable, but um, uh, still there's a kind of oddity of first becoming stiff and formal in order to indicate the somewhat far past and then becoming human in order to create the dramatic interest of the uh, movie is very is very tough to do. And because this one is so into the scene setting and the sumptuousness and the costumery and the, uh, you know, uh, heaving embonpoint or whatever, it's um, uh, it was hard for me to lose myself in the story until it became clear that it has a, a very distinct... 
uh, and somewhat careful structure, which is that it's basically an all about Eve uh, story. And having those two women, those two actresses, pull that off with the um, the third whose affections are being competed for being Olivia Coleman was that was remarkable. I agree that it's misanthropic. It's very unclear if anyone has anything or is, is capable of anything like a, a human or sympathetic motivation though i think julia's absolutely right i mean to the degree the movie hangs your sympathies on any one character it's surprisingly in a turn that i think is quite successfully pulled off it's the rachel vice character who is going to be kind of head mean girl uh and sort of social sadist for the picture it turns out to maybe be its one source of uh of what we would think of as authentic warmth or, or affection uh so in the end i liked it but i was surprised that it was it was elevated um, by some earlier views as high as it was. I mean, one thing that I will say, maybe this is my version of finding of Dana finding it overdirected. There is a way in which this movie, and I think Roma, which we're about to discuss, has a bit of this too, had a, had a little bit of a quality of like, you are at the cinema. Welcome to movies. We do our own thing. And it, it reminded me of like um, the way printed books have evolved in the last 10 years to be like, you are holding printed matter. We have a glorious embossed cover. <laughs> Check out this deckled edge. Like this, this art form may be dying, but hello, we can do some fascinating things here. Like just the specificity of the world it conjured, the, the um, ostentatiousness of some of the shots. I also just loved, like maybe my favorite moment in it is there's a moment where, um, there's some kind of ball or festival, and Olivia Coleman has been wheeled in to watch it, bedecked in furs and robes, and uh, Rachel Weiss goes off to dance to entertain the queen, but then she kind of gets into it with this um, suitor, nobleman, whatnot. But then the dance they do is like, I don't know, it's sort of like a mix between what you would see Kira Knightley doing in a Jane Austen movie, and then... Um, the scene from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yes, exactly. What Oscar Isaac does with the android with the and Ex Machina. Yeah. Yeah. It's suddenly like a dance medley of the dance of like the last four centuries. <laughs> and like, but it goes by in the blink of an eye and then they're all back in their wigs. Like just the particular weirdness of the world and the way it's rendered. I felt so happy to be soaked in this like ornate vision just because of the, the pleasantness of the performances. But I, I see how that could be could seem just showy rather than pleasant. I mean, I guess I, I actually liked those anachronisms. I mean, th- to, that to me gets to the larger question of anachronism in this movie, which is clearly a deliberate ploy on the filmmaker's part. I mean, it's not an accident that there's that dance medley through the centuries, like you say. And they're also at some point I was writing down a, a character says, OK, you know, which was an expression which wasn't invented in English until probably 200 years later. There's some other sort of phrasings like that where it's really clear that He's not interested. Lanthimos is not interested in making a pristine snow bubble of what it was like inside Queen Anne's court and that he wants to connect it to modernity in some way. Um, Also, of course, we haven't even mentioned this, but the fact that this movie is hugely dirty and raunchy. It's about a lesbian love triangle, basically. And, and, you know, the language is so salty, like the C word. Remember our big discussion here on the show about the C word? What does it mean in our time? I mean, go to this movie if you want to do some serious thinking about the C word, because everybody gets called it and calls each other it constantly. And uh, 
I loved all that stuff. I didn't want it to be more proper or less anachronistic or anything like that. I actually really enjoyed the, the interplay among all these mm-hmm. characters. But the attempt to reach out to some larger political meaning, I mean, I just I don't see that at all. I don't see this as being an effective or interesting allegory for anything about politics, even though a great deal of what goes on in the Queen's Court is this discussion about a war with the French that's going on right then in England. And, you know, should it be funded? Should it go on? The Tories right, don't want right. the war. But we never obviously deliberately, right, because it's a hothouse, but we never see anything about the war or hear about anyone who's affected by or dying in the war. It's this distant, again, chess game that's happening far from the court. And that may be the entire Mm. point. But I feel like it's also a way that the movie somewhat absolves itself of the responsibility of having to deal with anything larger than what's happening in this rabbit-filled hothouse of lesbians. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I forgot my one big note about this movie is that that I loathed it until I saw that it was very in on its own joke, which I, I admit is pretty early on and maybe... Maybe I came in late with that realization. I mean, I was seeing it alone in a movie theater. and it, But when it becomes clear that this is being played somewhat broadly, you know, uh, in parts for laughs, I would say specifically Emma Stone's relationship with her, with her um, suitor, uh, would-be suitor, possibly rapist. Um, I mean, the some of the dialogue, there is, a, there is one exchange that I don't want to give away between the two of them in her chambers, which is just so beautifully, so no, definitely great line. On. One of the it best is... lines of last year. Yeah. So anyway, anyhow, uh, all right. The movie's the favorite. Go check it out and uh, tell us which side of the fence you ended up landing on. Moving on. All right. Before we go any further, I am guessing that we have uh, business. Dana, what do you got? Yes, Steve. Our only piece of business today is to note that in Slate Plus, we are talking about film. A question from a listener. Since this has been an all movie themed show, we thought we would do a Slate Plus that was movie themed as well. And we got so many good questions from listeners for our call in show that we did over the holidays that we're going to do a leftover question about foreign film. And each of us will talk about our favorite foreign films, which is just the kind of nice, broad question that I love. No listing, no ranking, just talk about your beloveds. So tune into Slate Plus for that. And if you don't belong to Slate Plus, think about signing up. Slate Plus is the membership program of our magazine, and it's a great way to support our podcast. You pay $35 for your first year to help cover the cost of producing this show and all your other favorite Slate shows. You'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and the other Slate podcasts you love and many other wonderful benefits. Go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right. Onward, Steve. Alfonso Cuaron has established himself as a, I mean, I have to use language like this, right? A master of world cinema. E tu mama tambien, Children of Men, the very best of the Harry Potter pictures. He's an auteur's auteur. The man knows how to helm a movie regardless of the material. The material here, however, in Roma is the stuff of his own early life. He took apparently every conceivable pain to recreate the world of his own childhood but then chose not to place himself, or even in some respects, his own family at the center of it, but his, his caregiver, his nanny, here named Cleo. And what results is uh, in the act of telling her story and obliquely the story of his own childhood, what results is a really ravishing and, and ravaging, a pitiless and pitiful uh, work of total cinema. I'm sorry to use superlative language, but uh, Dana, you did in your review also. I blame you. Um, it's not sweet or tart, this movie. Let's listen to a clip briefly because it will be in Spanish. Me va a correr. Correr? Claro que no, Cleo. Como Chris, no seas tonta. Hay que llevarte al doctor ya. Ay, vergüenza, mierda. Pero mamá, me suena bien. A ver. ¿Por qué Cleo está 
Dana, once again, I'm going to start with you. Um, you loved this movie, um, and I thought your review did it real justice, so I'll just throw to you openly. I mean, describe what it is this movie meant to you. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in saying that this, well, this comes from our previous conversation about the favorite, but Julia, I think you are right in saying that in some ways Roma is about itself as a film. I mean, there's there's no way to watch it, especially in a theater, without being aware that you're watching a specific art form unfolding in a specific place. And it's worth mentioning, too, the format that this was filmed in and why everybody, including me, every critic keeps saying, see it in the theater, see it in the theater, even though it's been on Netflix since December 14th and is viewable there as well. Um, it's because it's in, okay, it's in 70 millimeters, so it's a double wide image. It's also mixed in some state-of-the-art sonic mixing form called Atmos. You can see how well I understand that technique from my description of it. Um, but Atmos sound, I think, is sort of, you know, taking Dolby sound up several notches, and it's a way of hearing different layers in the soundtrack, which is something that really improves your experience of this movie, because what Cuaron's trying to do is, you know, sonically and visually recreate the the aura of Mexico City of his childhood. So, you know, you hear, there's no um, music in this movie. It's all actual sound, things that are happening that the characters can hear as well, and you hear all these things drift through the windows, whether it's a band marching by in the street or, you know, traffic and cars honking and conversations passing. And it's a very rich, immersive cinematic experience. So that's my argument for seeing it in the theater. As for the movie itself, I mean, I don't know. I'm sort of hoping that Julia comes in and, and tartly takes us down because Steve, you and I are going to wax so poetic about it. But I just feel like what this movie is trying to do is something that I love when art tries to do, which is reach back into someone's memory and uh, and recreate an experience from memory. It's kind of a, a Proustian, you know, um, effort that's, that's always doomed, but is always fascinating to watch someone undertake. And there's almost a madness in the level of detail that he's gone to to try to have that experience. And I know that that has resulted in some quarters in regarding this movie as being, I mean, I don't know, to be unpoetic about it, that it has its head up its ass too much, right? That it's too much about um, somebody regarding their own experience and not, for example, being open to the experience of the sort of protagonist of the movie, who's Cleo, this nanny who's played by Yelitsa Aparicio, a previously non-professional actress that Cuaron combed all of Mexico to find. He wanted to find someone who not only could act, but really looked the part and really reminded him of his childhood nanny, who's who's still around and has given some great interviews about about this movie as well. Uh, I don't particularly don't belong to the crowd of people that, that, that believe that Cuaron has appropriated the experience of the other, of this this domestic servant of his childhood, really, uh, to tell his own story. I think that it is in some ways a movie about how impossible it is to relive one's childhood, recast one's experience, ever really live inside someone else's head. What it feels like to me is a kind of reaching back into the past to try to relive it with the understanding that you can never be anyone else than who you are. And uh, and that, that that attempt, while failed, is also a noble attempt, right, to, to recast an experience through art and to understand the world through someone else's eyes. Um I don't know. Disabuse me, Julia. Do you find that this a colonialist project because it is, in fact, a middle class white man or whatever white means by the standards of Mexico reaching back to tell the story of an indigenous woman? Uh, you're not going to set me up like that. <laughs> Roma boogeyman for our episode. Um, I mean, I think the questions about class and ethnicity and point of view and yeah, I, I, I enjoyed reading Richard Brody's um assertion that the movie completely fails to get inside 
the character of Cleo and is a bunch of insane, pointless exercises. Like it was useful to read that alternate perspective on the film in thinking about my own views of it. But I loved it. I mean, it it was just so powerfully and insanely made and so unusually made. I will confess to having seen it on my TV screen because I couldn't get it together to go to a movie theater. Um, and so I watched it last night on uh, my TV and I kind of wish I'd managed to get to a theater because it is so every single frame of it has, I mean, you pointed out in your review, Dana, the, the, the kind of significance of mise-en-scene in the film, but every single frame is like a frameable photographic composition the amount of choreography of planes in this movie, the amount of times that planes fly by in the sky at just the crucial moment in a scene. How do they do that? I, I, it, there's like marvels in every scene. There moment, you know, there's yeah. constantly something happening in the background and, and you don't, there's a freshness in what you're seeing that I think comes from the improbability of the cinematic moment we're at right now. Like, it is very unusual to see a personal domestic foreign language narrative created as though it was expected to be a blockbuster. Like you can see the money in the movie, I think is basically what I'm saying. Like, Oh, okay. Let's just, you know, there's just been a a dinner where the family has reckoned with some various tragedies in their lives and they're all silently morosely but sort of togetherishly eating ice cream but let's just sit them like as though they're a last supper tableau but with ice cream cones underneath like a gigantic crab sculpture with its pincer aiming right at cleo's head and then oh let's have there be a whole wedding party in the background with like flash bulbs and a toast pop like what that's just like one scene that goes by in like a nanosecond and then the next scene has the same amount of it's like a Bruegel painting every single one. There's so much happening. And so one of my responses to the movie was just, I've never seen anything like this, not just because of Corum's talent as a storyteller, but just to to have kind of this extravaganza storytelling scale uh, marshaled in service of trying to get inside the head of the woman who was the center of his home growing up was wonderful to watch. I don't, I'm not sure I've yet sorted through why, like what, what, um, why is it that having such extravagantly choreographed scenes, why is that storytelling choice that Quaron has made in order to, to get into this very personal story and I'm curious what you guys think about that question like why mm. other than because you can I mean my initial response Julia would be to say that it, that that's because there's more going on than just the intimate story that there's also an attempt to place that story within history and I think if you were Mexican or knew the history of Mexico well this might be clearer than it is to us as viewers but he's also placing this story of his childhood in the time that it took place which is the early 70s in Mexico and kind of balancing the intimate story with this this broader like you say Bruegel-esque or Delacroix-like story of you know for example 
a famous massacre that took place at a student protest in Mexico, which we see a little glimpse of in one scene. There's also a scene of paramilitary training that we witness that we're forced to kind of figure out ex- between the lines what's going on. You know, this isn't a, 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 the kind of movie where you're going to see someone conveniently coming on TV, a newscaster explaining what all the events in the background mean. But again, as with Proust, I would say that there's a, an intimate story of a family that's unrolling against a backdrop of history and of a a transformative moment in history. And that's something, for example, that the favorite doesn't really manage to do, right? I mean, it might capture the intimate moment, but it's not really placing us at a specific time and place in history in the way that I think this this movie does really effortlessly and beautifully. Right. Um, I have an answer. Um, So when you first said a choreography of planes, I thought it was a just beautiful, like cinema studies, like phrase meaning planes of you know depth like the way that <laughs> yeah, yeah, depth yeah. Of, and and he does certainly do that you're sort of in a space and there might be something happening quite far away quite close up or both at the same time I and mean, there's a sense of depth of field and control of depth of field that's that's remarkable um so there's this another cinema studies term focalization which is commonly used to describe kind of whose point of view a movie is taking place through which is sort of important to think about in movies because you don't have first person narration there aren't super obvious you know it may be more super obvious in the course of reading a book whose point of view is being really kind of represented by the you know uh, narrative and the camera may not may allow that or may not allow that and I am positive that he was aware of the possibly colonialist appropriation of this person's experience. And so he both wanted the movie to be about her, but he didn't want to presume to focalize it on her and to ally the camera so totally with her and her experience that he was in some sense presuming to speak for or through her. And you have to remember that his experience of this person was they were a center of emotional gravity in a household that was coming to pieces in ways that were, you know, quite repressive and silent and totally confusing and disoriented to the kids who are picking up that story only in bits and pieces as the nanny and the servant class is as well. I mean, this is, among many other things, a study in the relationships between a more European Spanish, bourgeois Mexico, and a more native um, uh, servant class Mexico. I mean, this is a class drama through and through. And um, the camera being generous and inclusive in, in, in its focus is important, I think, to get all of that in, you know, even as it follows this one character preeminently. I don't think it presumes to tell us what her inner life is like. And that inscrutability may finally be a little bit hard for some viewers, but that matter-of-fact style also conveys real suffering that that person goes through in the course of the year that this marriage is falling apart so that it doesn't feel as though it's really about, and it isn't really about the marriage falling apart. It's about how so much social and physical pain befalls this one person whose strength is yet what keeps this household alive and coherent. Anyway, that that's sort of what I took away from from the mise-en-scene or whatever, the relationship of the method of the movie to the, I, I agree, quite open question of whether it's appropriate for 
you know, a world famous film director to presume to tell the story of, of this sort of a person. I mean, if it makes any difference, the reception of this movie in Mexico, I think, has been very different from from here. I get the impression that Mexican audiences are very excited to see an indigenous woman as the center of a movie and that, that, that this actress, Yelitsa Aparicio, appeared on the cover of Mexican Vogue. And that was a huge deal because I don't think an indigenous person and a, a darker skinned woman had appeared on the cover of Mexican Vogue. You know, I think that 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 racial divide and class divide, obviously, as this movie is all about, uh, has persisted in Mexico for a long time and that this movie was actually opening something up to a lot of audiences that that they hadn't seen before. So, I mean, it, it also depends on where you stand when you make that judgment of what is culturally appropriative and what isn't. And I also think, I mean, to, to maybe answer my own question, I think you're right, Steve. And I, Dana, you said something in your review that I found clarifying, which is that you somehow perceive the movie as being from Quaron's perspective, even though it is about Cleo. That, that there was sort of a searchingness of the point of view, a sense that memory is the point of view, that the, that the old haunt is being explored and considered, that the incident, you, you're sort of seeing at once how the incidents appeared to a child. You know, they all go away to this kind of luxurious resort and the grown-ups are like drunkenly partying and making glib comments about the conflicts over land expropriation and the conflicts between the, the wealthy ranchers and the local people. And you're sort of simultaneously hearing it the way kids hear it, which is just as chatter um, and with a bit of a remove. And maybe that's what all of that, the planes of both kinds and the, I mean, even the planes I was talking about are suggestive of uh, the, the bird's eye point of view, right? The ability to see it from afar that help resolve the tension that Brody was pointing out, which is that actually the sense of not quite being inside Cleo's head is intentional and is part of Quaron's sense of the limits of his own understanding. Yeah, that so was that so it, well put. It's, it's about mm. kind of the curiosity, looking back on your own life with curiosity about how someone else experienced that time, mm. which yeah. is hard to be against curiosity. Yeah, that was so well put, Julia. I think w the question of focalization that Steve was talking about, whose point of view, who's doing the seeing in this movie, right? It's a very, it's a movie about a very specific way of seeing. So who is doing the seeing? And it seems to me that in some almost magical way, Cuaron, who also did the cinematography, which is quite unusual, he shot this movie himself, he also edited it himself, that he's communicating through the movement and the placement of the camera that who is telling the story is the grown version of one of the children in this household. We never learn which one. The children are not particularly different, differentiated characters, but the seeing is being done by one's own childhood self. If one's own childhood self had this kind of melancholy remove of one's grown up self, knowing that you can't really return and what that child is seeing is the life of someone who he took for granted at the time and who he's now trying to see. But as you say, never quite making it into her interiority. And that is a very complex thing for camera work to to communicate. But I feel like from frame one of this movie, that's where you find yourself almost as if you're watching through a glass, which is also how everything looks, right? Everything is it's shot in black and white. And there's almost a, a sense of of a, a clear, hard surface that separates us from these memories that we can't quite access. All right. Well, people should try, make an effort to go see this uh, on a big screen. It is available readily on your little screen via Netflix. It's Roma. Um, check it out and come talk to us about it. What, what an astonishing film. Okay, moving on. 
All right. Well, it is that time of year again where Slate does Movie Club. Is it, Julia, was this one of your faves when you were the editor? I, I tell this story every year when we talk about it, but um, not only was it one of my faves when I was editor, it was one of my faves before I even came to Slate and when I wrote my cover, no, my exercise for my job, my job memo to get my very first job at Slate in 2002, um, I wrote about the movie club as a form and what I liked about it and how I thought it was a useful, engaging type of criticism. So it's, it's an old love. Then I came to Slate the following year, 2003, and immediately began to send it downhill. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, my God. A towering monument to our own false humility known as Day. Now, Stevens, I'm going to turn to you. You sort of kind of host the movie club this year as the site's uh, film critic. Well, it is, am I right? Is it's kind of a dipstick to the state of Hollywood? You get really intelligent uh, film critics just sort of shooting the shit with each other about what transpired. So tell me what the, did any kind of trends emerged in the discussion? Was it sort of obvious what kind of a year this was for Hollywood commercially and artistically? First of all, I should just say who the movie club was this year. I got a super dream team. I actually got three people that were on my absolute A list that I wanted to get. And that's not easy because movie club goes between, we write between Christmas and New Year's. So people are always writing through holidays and travel and family activities. And they were amazing this year. So it was Amy Nicholson. Right now she's unaffiliated with any one publication, but she publishes here and there. And she also does two great podcasts, The Canon and Unspooled. Uh, Bilga Ibiri, who for a long time was the Village voice film critic, but since the very sad folding of that publication is now a freelancer who pops up everywhere, and Cameron Austin Collins, who is the film critic for Vanity Fair. So the whole format of Movie Club is that the four of us go through that week um, doing four rounds of, you know, posts, I guess you would call them. I mean, they're not reviews, they're conversation pieces in which we discuss whatever we want to in the year of movies. Uh, as for what trends emerged this year, I mean, I'm always, that's always the awkward part of doing the very first post of Movie Club is that you have to be the person who decides what defines this year in movies, which is always so incredibly artificial. As Bilga, I think, points out in, in one of his posts, for example, let's take The Other Side of the Wind, a movie that's existed since, you know, the, the 70s and has gone through all these various permutations before finally happening to come out in 2018. Is that a 2018 movie? And uh, to some degree, that artificiality exists on any bar that you put around a movie that happens to come out in a certain year, right? It might have been conceived and written well before that. It might have been in development for many, many years. So, you know, you take a movie like The Death of Stalin, which I write a whole post about and which was really fun to revisit. When I look back, that really was one of the best movies of the year, I think. But the death of Stalin, which seems to us now to be so vibrantly about the political moment that we're in and about, you know, the transfer of power and authoritarianism and, you know, what does it mean to seize power um, was was formulated well before Brexit or Trump ever came into being as possibilities. So it always seems somewhat artificial to me to say these are the trends of the year. That said, something that I get to in my very first post that relates back to Roma, which we just talked about, is where is theatrical distribution at, right? What, what, Where are we right now with the difference between movies and television with the future of that art form as distinct from other art forms. I mean, this this feels like an old question until you start to notice 
how vibrant it is in this year's releases. Uh, for example, The Tale, the great Laura Dern starring film that we talked about that was released on HBO, really to very little fanfare in the middle of the year. Even though when we were all at Sundance together, remember, The Tale was one of the hot movies. And as it happened, the acquisition deal went through television rather than theaters. And I think as a result, that movie got somewhat lost. When I said that in Movie Club, a bunch of people popped up and you know corrected me and said, I saw that movie on HBO and it was great and it changed my year. And, and it's a perfectly legitimate release platform for it to be on HBO. And I don't dispute that, but I do think it's something that still is needs to be decided within the industry. They're still trying to decide that themselves. It happened with Roma as well, right? Which which Netflix not only distributed but but financed. It's a it's a Netflix studio movie that has this unusual release pattern where it was only shown in, in cinemas for a short time. Of course, as a movie critic, I'm gonna be the person who's cheering for the existence of theatrical platforms for things. But I also want interesting movies to get made and I don't want Marvel blockbusters to control you know, the, every decision that studios make about about what to release where. So that was one question that came up often in our discussion. And that I think is is still one that's unresolved in the industry. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that thread about Roma and distribution is one that's been running through the year end coverage. And I think through award season a bit. And we did a roundtable of a bunch of the kind of Oscar contention directors a couple months ago, in which Ryan Coogler and Spike Lee like got into it about where people see movies and Spike Lee was lamenting, oh, people have to see Roma on their TVs. It's so sad. What about the theater and the communal experience? And Ryan Coogler was basically calling him out. just like, look, no kid is doing that. That is just not what movies are. Like, get over it. And also don't be a snob, basically, where the subtext. Don't be a snob and don't be a, a, someone who doesn't understand the experience of young people without much money. Like, it's just not, that's not what that entertainment is anymore for folks. And so if you're not making, if you're not expecting that everyone's going to see your thing on a phone, you're doing it wrong. Um, And, you know, that seems like a tough fate to condemn Roma to. It would be harder to appreciate the gigantic paper mache pincer or whatever the hell is in that scene I described uh, on your phone, probably. But, um, I don't know. I think that's such an interesting current in how we think about which movies really landed for us and and how. And I also really enjoyed there was a thread of talking about whether the movies that engender discussion are the movies that actually endure as the ones that you think about and the ones that stay with you and the ones that are the most potent. Um, I've been struck in the year-end coverage by how little discussion there is of Star is Born. Like, people seem to have uh, ta- spent all of their talking energy on that movie in the three weeks after it came out and the hype and the hustle and the drama and the whoo. And then it, it, for some reason, it doesn't seem like it's registering as significantly as an important work to be reckoned with. And the fact that it didn't do so well at the Golden Globes, even though the Golden Globes are not predictive of anything, kind of lent a sense that maybe that movie's exploded all of its energy at once somehow. Uh, and you mentioned, I think, Dana, that Annihilation is a film that has kind of stayed with you through the course of the year. Other folks were talking about The Rider. I had sort of forgotten about I mean, I, I remember walking out of Death of Stalin and being like, well, that's the movie of the year. It should win all the awards. And it's like barely even being talked about. Um, so that sense of, you know, one of the joys in the moment is collective digital appreciation of culture. Like the, the the fact that one of the things happening on the internet right now is people who love art yakking about it all the time with each other is 
for all that we like to complain about Twitter and the sad state of the social media and the body politic. Like that's, I, I take that as a good of our current digital era, but it, I thought that the movie club pointed up some of the downsides of that constant conversation is that if you aren't being talked about, you sort of aren't taken seriously as a film, even though some of the most powerful stuff isn't necessarily at the surface of that conversation. I would note that I have an entire post devoted to A Star is Born where I, I sort of talk about that, how, you know, I think really one of the lasting movies of the year for me will be A Star is Born just because I'll always listen to that soundtrack. I'll always laugh at memes about wanting to get another look at someone. I think that that movie has it's it's gone to a place beyond where it needs to get awards. I feel like it's actually sort of become a part of the cultural fabric, at least of, of those of us who loved it. And so I do I do give a little tribute to it in, in one of my posts. But yeah, this is what's fun about movie club to me is that we're not any more tethered to the calendar when it comes out. It's the one week of the year as a movie critic where you don't have to worry about, did I publish on time before the movie opened? Am I part of the official conversation that we're allowed to have about the movie for 15 minutes after it opens before we move on to the next one? It actually is a time when you can revisit and look back on a year, which, as I say in my first post, seems like it took a hell of a long time to finish and think about movies like you know, Isle of Dogs or Tully and things that came out so early in the year that it now seems like another era and, uh, and you know, just bring them back into the conversation. Tully! Tully. Love Tully. See, to me, Tully has not worn that well. When I remember it now, I just remember that the contrivance at the end seemed really artificial and I could never recover from that. Steve, do you even have any memory of that movie? Were you around when we talked about it? I must have missed it. Which one is it again? With Charlize Theron, where she's, I mean, it's a great premise. Tully. The depressed mom. <laughs> I, that, for me, was never going to be in the conversation of defining movies of the year. Um, and yes, I've almost totally forgotten it. Um, Manic Pixie Dream Manny. Love that movie. <laughs> but here I have a I have a I have mostly questions for this segment. And here's another one. Um it you know, it seemed to me maybe this was the year where people suddenly became aware that the embarrassment of riches of peak TV had kind of gl- glutted on glutted on itself a little bit. You know, there are jokes on Saturday Night Live about how you, you walk into a pitch meeting at Netflix and you say, I'd like to tell a story. And they say story and they hand you, you know, $8 million to film it. Or nothing really popped out as great this year, according to Willa Paskin and others. Um, and so we're sort of in the, in the, you know, the far side of the golden age of TV where absolutely everything is a B plus, um, And therefore you end up wanting to watch nothing. And, and that can only affect how people feel about you know, movies that are between 90 minutes and two, ideally two, two and a half hours long, sometimes three, that tell, and now this excludes all of the Marvel movies, that tell a single discrete story with a beginning, middle, and an end that have to be devoted to craft um, and have to tell the story with a degree of concision. Um, you know, isn't this sort of the year where the the, the art of making a movie, of making a, a, a single film, you know, that just tells its story uh, uh, with craft kind of returned to the movies or at least our awareness returned to what was distinctive about going into a movie theater, certainly, um, but also just um, uh, watching something whose goal wasn't to stretch out to 8, 10, 12 hours in multiple seasons. 
Yeah, reading TV Club this year really made me feel lucky to be a movie critic because it was seemed so. It's always seemed so exhausting to be a TV critic. I was a TV critic in the days before you know what we're now calling the golden age of of streaming, and it was already impossible to keep up with just the prestige HBO shows and the FX shows and you know whatever more limited options there were then. To be a TV critic now just seems like pure Sisyphean exhaustion at all times. And uh, and I got the sense from a lot of the contributors to TV Club, including Willa, that there's a real sense of burnout at what you were saying, sort of the, the B-plus phenomenon of there being so many stories that are pretty good and it's, it's so hard to keep up with all of them. I mean, that that element of movies, whether it's experienced in a theater or, or at home or wherever, the element that they're just one and done, that they tell a story and then they're over, is something that I treasure. And I think it makes them easier to share in a way. I mean, that's something that Movie Club is about, right? We're passing these movies around and sort of holding them up to the light at different angles and looking at them in a way that's really hard to do with a huge serialized narrative that that might not be over yet, you know, that hasn't hasn't yet said the thing that it has to say. All right. So listen, it's uh, 21 posts, uh, three or four really great uh, film critical minds, you know, hashing it out all the byways and subtleties of a year in film nonetheless i'd like to reduce this down as crudely as possible to favorite movie of the year around the horn julia turner go oh you can't ask me first dana stevens favorite movie of the year too late (laughs) you said you didn't want it i'm throwing the ball to the other part of the horn Data Stevens, favorite movie of the year, go. Well, okay, as you know, I'm a non-ranker, so I'm not giving you just one title. Oh my God, you too. <laughs> I'm going to say, I mean, I'm going to say Roma, but since Roma is such a common answer and we just talked about it and everybody knows that Roma is wonderful and a masterpiece and it arguably is very aware, perhaps too much so, of its own masterpieceness, I am also throwing in Can You Ever Forgive Me, which I think is a much more low-key but absolutely perfect character study that has nothing wrong with it, basically. It has an unbelievably great script. It, all All of the casting and acting is fantastic. And it's a movie that many fewer people are likely to see and hear about and and see grandiosely trumpeted on the top of movie lists. So I'm going to say Roma for your big art movie. And can you ever forgive me for your small, beautiful and forgettable character study? Uh, Julia Turner. Uh, Because I feel so stuck, I think I will play to type here and say Black Panther. Loved Black Panther kind of a revelation to see that form uh, turned into something so much more than what we have seen in other contexts. Uh, And then Tully, just to stick it in your both of your craws, because I actually really thought Tully (laughs) was incredible. And I thought the twist ending totally worked. Um, Get your craws ready, because um, I have two answers since... We're all coming up with a couple. Uh, Leave No Trace, the Deborah Granick movie. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. On my top 10 list. Uh, and now are you ready? Are your craws ready? Mm, I guess. A Simple Favor starring Anna Kendrick and Blake <laughs> Lively. Boom. Oh, I still haven't seen that because you guys did that while, during my hiatus. I missed so many good movies during that little bit. I got to go see that and listen to what you guys said. All right, I'm putting it on my list. Oh, my God, Steve. I'm not going to even go down that road with you. But yes, it is very enjoyable to see Blake Lively wearing a three-piece suit with a pocket watch. I'll put it that way. She looks amazing. Hollywood gave me Hollywood and gave me golden age fucking Hollywood in that movie. And it never does that anymore. Stars being stars, being magnificent, being, being arch with one another incredibly sharp just sharply written dialogue in a in a neo-noir 
I just it it fucked it up. It fucked it up, but it had it for a while and even for an hour or even 35 minutes to be sitting there in the old fashioned thrall of like 1950s Hollywood, you know, noir movie making uh, of what's the great Billy Wilder one. Why am I blanking? Um, oh, double indemnity. Yeah. I just felt as though, as though the spirit of double indemnity was alive for, for 20, 25, 35 minutes. I'm bargaining myself down five minutes, <laughs> 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Uh, and uh, so there it is. It's on my list. You can all go F yourself. All right. Slate's Movie Club is awesome. Uh, go check it out. Go read it and then talk to us on Twitter about uh, what you thought. Moving on. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse day na 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 That's Morse code, actually. Dana. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, since we're having a movie-themed show today and all of our segments have been about movies my endorsement will be a movie as well and it's one that i discovered over the course of movie club as i say in the last post one of the fun things about movie club is that in between dashing out these posts i'll often run to my tv and grab a screener and watch a movie that i wouldn't have otherwise watched because somebody mentioned it or put it on their list in the club and one of those this year was shirkers which is an amazing documentary i just saw on netflix in the last two days that uh, had I seen it in time would certainly have gone on my 10 best list for the year. And not to give too much about it away because it's uh, it's a movie that has a lot of revelations and twists you want to discover on your own. But Shirkers is a documentary about three teenagers in Singapore. It was begun in 1992 by these three teenage girls just making a documentary about their lives. And I won't say more about that. And then in a process that you learn about over the course of the movie, the footage was stolen from them by one of their collaborators and, uh, and not seen for many years, all of these years in between. And so Shirkers is the story of how Sandy Tan, the filmmaker, rediscovered this footage, went back to Singapore to tell the story of what had happened to it and what had changed in the years in between. And so it's one of those miracle documentaries where stuff happens over the course of the making of the documentary that couldn't have been predicted, but that tells just such a huge and fascinating story. Um, so, And it's on Netflix. It's quite short. I think it's 96 minutes long. Um, it's funny and shocking and astonishing and just a wonderful piece of work, Shirkers by Sandy Tan. All right, Julia, what do you have? Okay, my endorsement is a uh, part of a subcategory of endorsements that I give sometimes, which are things I discovered from our Summer Strut playlist by listening to it on repeat for months and months and months and months after Summer Strut until it is, in fact, the next year. Um, and this song, I don't know if it's emo. I don't really know what it's about. It's utterly context-free for me, but it is so sweet and sweeping and earnestly romantic that I just my ears prick up whenever it comes on in the huge summer strut mega mix that I'm constantly listening to. It is called Little Heartbeat by Cataldo. And I will simply say that its opening verse has sort of like an ornate, nervous, teen, romantic couplet or couple of couplets that I find incredibly charming. And then the chorus is a little bit schlocky, but delectably so. Is this a part where we finally touch? Tearing through the knee-high underbrush I can still hear you whisper I want the best of your love But please God be dumb for once And don't ask if she means the eagles or the emotions Set the pace, raise the stakes Listen, babe, you've got the best of my you need if 
Okay, well, I have two uh, endorsements this week. The first is that, you know, we were obviously on hiatus for a lot of the holiday season. But in the run-up to Christmas this year, I read out loud Dickens' A Christmas Carol to my two kids. And, you know, I'm not 100% sure I'd ever, I'd ever read it. Um, and uh, I feel like I had. I've seen so many different versions of it on stage and, uh, you know, obviously film. But um, and it's taken on the status of biblical parable uh, or or kind of grim fairy tale or something. I mean, it's just like we kind of all know it by heart, and it it's just so archetypal. It's just part of the landscape of our, our of our brains. Um, nonetheless, it's an astonishing piece of writing. It's in the public domain. You can find it on the internet. Uh, it's short. It's very quick. Um, and uh, it's just Dickens. It's just to my mind, Dickens is up there. I mean, he is yeah. may, maybe the second greatest, you know, English export of all time after Sha- literary export of all time after Shakespeare. I mean, he's he's very close to being that for me. Um, uh, you know, it you you take so for you know when people create something that works its way into the fabric of experience itself you forget that it was ever not in existence and that someone went from nothing to Ebenezer Scrooge and Bah Humbug and also by the way if you do a little bit of and barely more than a Wikipedia level Google searching but it does seem as though this claim is is sustainable for it which is that you know Christmas had really been more of a rural and village phenomenon um, up until Dickens, who said, no, you can bring all of this human warmth, you know, emphasis on family gathering and feasting, gift giving into the city, into an urban context. And when you read it, uh, yeah, and that in fact, Merry Christmas, though it had been said, you know, uh, seasonally on and off for 300 years or whatever it is going back to the 1500s I think or whatever it was Dickens who completely revived it for the new industrial urban world um, you know huh. sentimentally whatever but yes exactly this the fact that we go around saying Merry Christmas habitually giving gifts and getting together with family largely has to do or in some substantial way has to do with the popularity of a Christmas carol and his point was to say like we are so absorbed in getting and spending um, and we've destroyed this part of ourselves and at least once a year maybe this glimmer of light might enter into that uh, and so he creates an extremist this person who cares only about money scrooge uh uh but it's just it it's it's it there are there are moments of such narrative control i mean he wrote it quickly and for money which is probably why it's so fucking good but it's it's there're just a couple of moments involving his nephew like i don't want to give them away really i mean you think there would be no surprises in it but there was something i'd forgotten about the specifics of the storytelling it, it's actually a, a, like a deeply affecting work of literature i mean it's it it, it, it and the language uh, it's just an it's it's just astonishing it's it, it's in some category almost by itself i mean in the same way that like you know hamlet lear othello and macbeth just don't they don't exist simply as literary constructs in a way right they've taken on life life in the world right and that's this that's what this work is like well and even more than that it has this quality of um like fable myth moral Mm -hmm. so it Mm -hmm. feels sort of timeless and um eternal yeah even beyond the rest of his works i mean i i just want to just want to shout out our man charles dickens as like the most 
underrated agreed upon master of the language that there is even though mm-hmm. like everybody agrees he's one of the greats but then when you encounter one of his works the thing that always strikes me is is the sentences themselves like he's made yeah. so many plots and so many stories and so many characters who endure with us um and when you think of dickens off the cuff i think you think of like the titles of his works which are so indelible you think of the the visits from the three ghosts uh you think of christmas carol you think of maybe some of the great opening lines you think of the kind of particular twisted uh, proper names he gives all his characters and then you just get into it and you're like damn these sentences are good like the 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 sharpness and dexterity of the prose itself I always find like a bracing delightful right. splash right. every time I go back to it and you're like oh my god how can this be so much better than I remembered when I already thought it was going to be great right and I think unlike the other great English novelists so unlike Austin or Eliot or Hardy or you know Henry James who I understand is an American you know th- there's you know Dickens was both a gritty realist and an allegorist and there's a way in which he both wants you to feel the soot in your eye and wants to create a kind of fabular archetypal like like you're right fable they are they are sort of fables in a way and so they, they, they it's this odd combination of indistinct types you know, or or somehow very broadly drawn types with the hyper specific, you know, experiential reality of London in an industrial time, and I think that that combination is just totally unique to him, and it's hard to pl- it's you you can't place his writing next to other examples of great writing, um, and see a, a, an obvious commonality, but 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 he should be understand. I totally agree. He should be understood as a great, great prose stylist who is just so totally doing his own thing that you can't really place it on a common, common index with other obviously great literary writing. I mean, subtlety wouldn't, you wouldn't call subtlety exactly his, his no. strength <laughs> precisely. Right. I mean, that's, that's sort of the opposite of it. And so he's mistaken for facile, but he's not that at all. I mean, he's just, a, he's a master of being Charles Dickens. Anyway, we will move on very quickly. Bill Wyman, not the basis for the Rolling Stones, but the music critic has found a great sort of, you know, mid-career resurgence doing these uh, rankings for Vulture. And he recently did something that wasn't quite that, that I thought was so masterful. I really wanted to uh, point people to it if they missed it. 10 Things You Didn't Know About Bob Dylan's Never Ending Tour, uh, three decades in and nearly 3,000 shows. Um, You know, I find writing about Bob Dylan incredibly boring. This is the opposite of that. It's this deeply thought, really meticulously researched dive into what it means that Dylan 30 years ago decided to become a different different kind of artist principally centering his career around his live shows playing much smaller venues and seeking out obscure relatively obscure both venues and cities in an attempt to kind of crisscross over the whole country in in the unlikeliest way possible and how apparently that was a fairly conscious decision or totally conscious decision on Dylan's part mm-hmm. um and and it it, it he just gets into uh, Wyman has a great gift of loving the classic rock era critically so that he never comes off as a either a rock snob or a fogey and he's capable of rendering a value judgment without hesitation and without the shadow of all the people who are going to have a fucking twitter seizure when they read it and 
it's it's a combination of all that that makes this just an eminently uh, readable piece of cultural journalism. I really admire what he's doing. I thought this one was above and beyond. So check it out. It's on Vulture. Ten things you didn't know about Bob Dylan's Neverending Tour. Even if you like me can't fucking stand to read another word about Bob Dylan. This is terrific. Okay. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Bye. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. That's at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, as always, at culturefest at slate.com or uh, interact with us on Twitter. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Hold up. 